Welcome to Innovation Files. I'm Rob Atkinson, founder and president of the Information Technology and Innovation Foundation. We're a DC-based think tank that works on technology policy. And I'm Jackie Wisman. I handle outreach at ITIF, which I'm proud to say is the world's top-ranked think tank for science and technology policy. And this podcast is about the kinds of issues we cover at ITIF, from the broad economics of innovation to specific policy and regulatory questions about new technologies. Today, we're going to be talking about innovation in the defense sector. Michael Brown is our guest. He's the director of the Defense Innovation Unit at the U.S. Department of Defense. DIU, which was established in 2015, fields leading-edge commercial capabilities to the military faster and more cost-effectively than traditional defense acquisition methods. And Mike is going to explain all about what that means. Prior to government service, Mike was the CEO of Symantec Corporation, the global leader in cybersecurity and the world's 10th largest software company. And we're so happy to have you here. Welcome. Thanks so much. Great to be with you, Jackie and Rob. And not many government officials have a background like yours, so I'm excited to talk to you. Can you tell us a little bit about your history and what brought you to DIU? Absolutely. I found that at Symantec, one of the more interesting parts of the job was the interaction with government supporting in the cyber arena, work of the FBI, the NSA, and uh, frankly, our international partners like uh, GCHQ in the UK. And when I came to the end of my time being CEO at Symantec, I wondered, is there anything I can do in government service, uh, having spent my whole career in the private sector? And talked to my predecessor, Raj Shah, at the time, and he said, well, we've got a pretty interesting assignment that just came from Ash Carter, who was Defense Secretary at the time, and the Vice Chairman at that time uh, of the Joint Chiefs, General Selva. And it was, what are the Chinese doing with their investments in early stage technology? Why are they making them? What are they investing in? Where does that lead to? And he said, I need somebody who could start work on that. Uh, And I said, sure, that sounds like a pretty interesting assignment. And so I had no idea at the time that uh, that would be one of the most widely read papers in D.C. when it was completed. But it really shone a light. It was really the right topic at the right time. It really shone a light on this part of the Chinese technology transfer strategy. Well documented are the cyber theft, the industrial espionage, but little known that the Chinese were very active in investing in early stage technology in Silicon Valley and elsewhere across the country. And it really highlighted what are the implications of that. So that's how I got involved. And I couldn't be more enthused because I love the mission and the work and the people that I get to work with at DIU. You know, I was just going to say, Mike, I remember when that paper came out and it really opened a lot of people's eyes in Washington because you were the first group, the first, first entity that really dug into Chinese venture capital investments in Silicon Valley in California. And it was, it was shocking sort of how much was going on there. And I don't think most people realized that at the time. I think that uh, it really opened people's eyes to the phenomenon. And then their reaction was, what can we do to stop this? And a lot of the defensive actions, I was fortunate enough to work on some of those, like the Foreign Investment Risk Review Modernization Act, which strengthened CFIUS, give CFIUS some additional uh, jurisdiction beyond straight-up acquisition when technology transfer was involved. But as I know, Rob, you and I will agree, the real wake-up call needs to be what do we need to be doing to invest in ourselves? So what do we need to do to be increasing federally funded R&D, make sure our innovation system is vibrant? Uh, And then from the defense uh, standpoint, we're accessing all of the phenomenal commercial technology that's being developed. 
I think it'd be helpful for context if, if you could tell us and our listeners what the mission of DIU is and how you carry it out, because you're essentially running a government startup since it's only been around for a few years now. And it used to be DIUX, too. That's the other thing. Well, that's right. It was formed as the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental. And interesting story is that uh, when Secretary Mattis uh, took it over, fortunately, he was extremely supportive of the effort. He decided that he didn't want us to be confused as the experiment. So he removed that. <laughs> and uh, I support that. He became just Defense Innovation Unit, which is a little bit simpler. So the mission, as Ash Carter conceived it, was how can we accelerate the adoption of commercial technology. So it, it won't be any surprise that the Defense Department being as large as it is and with its well-established processes is not the easiest to work with if you're a small company. So the idea is how can we reduce those barriers so that if you have relevant technology, you produce autonomous systems or you supply AI, how can we incorporate what you do and get that to an end user and, and for the Defense Department, a warfighter, a, a soldier, sailor, airman, marine, how can we get that in their hands as quickly as possible? Part of that is acquisition. Part of it is a scouting function of looking at what's available in uh, the commercial sector. And then part of it is the prototyping and production scaling process that the military uses to get things in high volume to the field. And the way we carry that out is on a project basis. So we're not determining our own priorities. We're constantly scanning different areas of the Defense Department. In fact, we have a dedicated team of people. We call them Defense Engagement. They're looking for one of the most interesting problems to work on. We have an analogous group called Commercial Engagement. They're scanning what's happening in different technology areas like AI or autonomous systems or commercial space. So they're experts on who are the companies in that ecosystem that are providing leading capability. And then we have project managers at DIU who kind of put that together so that we decide on the interesting problems we're going to take on. We match that with interesting commercial providers and then go through a process where we're testing. We call it prototyping. It's not working with early stage uh, solutions from the commercial sector, but really mature solutions. But we prototype it in a military application and then work on, on getting that scaled once the uh, milestones have been proven. So it makes sure that it's a very competitive process. We're getting the best of uh, American technology that's out there, and it's proven capability. So we're not buying slideware. We actually test it uh, before we would send it out to uh, help um, the soldiers, airmen, sailors, and Marines. You know, just, Jackie, just a quick inter intervention here. One of my sort of heroes in, in innovation policy world is an economist, a Canadian economist named Dick Lipsy, Richard Lipsy. And Dick is just finishing up a really major paper looking at how, how do you know when innovation policy is successful? What, what makes good innovation policy? And one of the points he and, and a lot of other innovation scholars have made in the past is exactly what you're trying to do, Mike, is this sort of matching because oftentimes technology is either technology push, well, we got something, we'll see what happens with it, and there's no customer need there, or it's the opposite, well, we'll pull, but we don't really know who's developing it. You're putting the pull and the push together, and you're kind of in the middle of that as a matchmaker, facilitator, coordinator, enabler, and that seems to me to be a powerful model that we could use more of. Well, thanks. I think it really is working. Reason being, we make sure that there's the right pull when there's an interesting cool technology from people who need it. And what we've found in the few cases where we've seen something that's cool and, and think, gee, there must be a tremendous need for that, and then try and push that into defense, it, it doesn't go anywhere. 
One, because people don't have time to work on something that's not already at the top of their priority list in terms of what needs to be solved. And two, there's not an ongoing source of funding that's available to pull that solution through. So the last thing we want to do is frustrate the companies that we would work with. We don't want to have interesting conversations that don't go anywhere. They're also dealing with an opportunity cost of the military versus other commercial customers. So we want to make valuable use of the time they spend with us. And that that means designing a process that minimizes their time up to the point when a selection is made, when we're really engaging them on their way to a production contract. And I think that's working very well for the companies that we're working with. In fact, we saw a 40% increase in the amount of submissions that we get when we go out to the market and say, we've got a problem to solve. So we're excited about that many more companies that we're working with. We've introduced 65 first-time vendors to DOD. We're also seeing an uptick in the demand for what we do from the Defense Department. So we're doing three times the number of projects we did two years ago. That's really impressive. That's amazing. I mean, the Department of Defense is not exactly known as a nimble operator when it comes to the acquisition process. So I'm impressed. I, I am curious how you kind of make sure that everyone around you at the agency is thinking like an innovator, because obviously you bring your background to the table, but it's just... I mean, got to be tough. Well, there are so many talented folks at the Defense Department. I wish everyone as an American citizen could have the experience I've had of working with leadership in the Defense Department. Such talented, dedicated people who are innovative and want to do the right things. Now, they they are saddled with processes uh, probably put in place for good reason, but uh, that make the department not agile And that's really the challenge. If you hear General Hyten, the current vice chairman, talk about what we need to do to improve the culture at the Defense Department, he will say, and I completely agree with him, it's all about speed. We could solve a lot of the ills that we see by emphasizing the need to look at every process and go fast. And uh, this is an outcome of the history of having won the Cold War and not having any near-peer adversaries for some time that now we're faced with. And when we're in this situation and we're in a tech race with China, for sure, uh, we need to make sure that we're going fast enough to compete. The energy is there, the capabilities there from the folks, the people in the Defense Department. But uh, I would say the budgeting process is something that really needs some reform so that we can go faster. If, if we want to spend a dollar at the Pentagon, we had to have started on that uh, process two years in advance to get that approved by the leadership at DOD and then and then Congress. That's just not competitive today. Yeah, if we want to spend a dollar at ITIF, it basically takes about five minutes. Yeah, because Rob, Rob says no. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's something the Defense Department needs to learn from the private sector. Uh, the <laughs> leaders, senior leaders in a private company have a lot of discretion on how they're going to spend the funds. And that's not the case at DOD. We can get into that maybe a little bit later, but I just want to sort of go up a little bit on another level, which is in this new piece that I think you you saw today, Mike, understanding the U.S. innovation system. You know, we argue in that piece that the U.S. had the world's greatest innovation system that, that we put in place during World War II, but really after the World War II, during the Cold War, all, all the way through Kennedy and, and, and later. And during that period, DOD worked extensively with the commercial sector, uh, Intel 
sold most of its chips early on to the Air Force because they were willing to pay a whole lot of money for a chip because it had the performance characteristics it needed. And then Intel used that to then go down to the next generation, the next generation, and finally got cheap enough to get into the commercial space. Oracle, a lot of people don't know this, was started with a CIA contract. Uh, Larry Ellison's first project was to help the CIA organize information. But it seems like over time, there's been less focus on dual-use companies, dual-use technologies. Do you, do you think that's right? Uh, it seems like that's a big portion of what you're trying to do is you're not reaching out to defense-only suppliers. You're, you're trying to reach commercial companies to think about, oh, and the defense sector. Well, I think that's right. We're trying to make sure that the bridges are built there to access the commercial sector for the areas where defense spending is not leading the investment. If we go back to the, as you well know, Rob, if we go back to the history of Silicon Valley and where it's got its name, it was from the semiconductor industry, as you just referenced Intel. In fact, I read an interesting statistic that in the mid-60s, one-third of the output of the semiconductor industry went straight to the space program. So just a phenomenal fact that the government was leading. We were the, an early adopter and the financiers, really, of the semiconductor industry. And if you think about uh, that period going from the Defense Department leading the development and being an early adopter to many of the key technologies that we need today, artificial intelligence, autonomous systems, what we're doing with commercial space, the Defense Department is not leading the development uh, we need to make sure that we move from the early adopter to a fast follower. And we're today sometimes a late adopter because, interestingly enough, a lot of those technologies first go to consumer applications uh, because they're the quickest to try something out and, and start to use it. So that's the change that the department's got to go through. What do we need to do to be a fast follower there? And the department is used to being in the driver's seat where it was determining these development cycles. So it's asking in that time period, commercial companies to adapt to its system or our system in the military. And that's what needs to change. DIU is a part of that change. Uh, the department's now got to be a customer, not the only customer of companies that have a lot of opportunity outside the defense sector. So how do we make ourselves an attractive customer? We've got to have access to the leading technology and then we've got to be an attractive customer so that uh, those companies don't just decide to, to go elsewhere where it's easier to do the sale. Very different from China, they have a strategy called civil military fusion, which means that every commercial innovation that occurs immediately gets transferred to the military by fiat. So we have a very different system. We have to work a little bit harder to make that work. Yeah, and that actually raises, I think, a, a bigger, a broader point, which is, you know, historically, DOD has has in the last 20 years, really looked at the defense industrial base as sort of its core. As long as the DIB is strong, you know, everything's fine. And I think there's two problems with that today. One is the DIB is not as strong as it used to be. The latest uh, Office of Industrial Policy report that DOD puts out to, to Congress, it showed that in detail in many, many areas, warfighter systems, vehicles, uh, optics, you name it. They're, they're, they identify weaknesses in the commercial sector of the U.S., and that suggests to me, particularly as you and, and DIU and others in, in the defense world understand that we need to have a strong advanced technology commercial sector in the U.S., and then your job is really to tie that together, to tap into it. But if we don't have that, it makes your job very, very difficult. And that gets to the, well, my key point, which is it seems like we need to do a better job of linking up 
the needs of having a strong advanced technology sector in the U.S. commercial economy with our defense capabilities. And, and some of the recent bills in Congress have really focused on that, the, the CHIPS Act, the Endless Frontier Act. So I'm, a little optimi- I'm somewhat optimistic that we're doing that. How do you think about that issue? I'm uh, very concerned uh, because I see that if we don't take these steps, it will be easy for the U.S. to fall behind. We've, we've been the leading economy for everyone's lifetime, so it's hard to imagine we're a second largest economy. Most economists think uh, China will overtake us in the, in the coming decade. It's hard to envision a world where we're not setting the technology standards, but here we are with 5G. It's giving us a concrete example of China being out there in front with one of their national champions, Huawei, and trying to set the pace. Now, we've put some, some roadblocks in their way, but I think unless we do the work that you're implying, which is make it clear that we want to be preeminent in science, make the investments in federally funded R&D, which have these tremendous spillover effects in the commercial economy, that really is the long-term science and technology investments that lead to breakthroughs in the economy like internet, GPS, miniaturized electronics. Unless we think long-term and make those investments, it will be easy for the technology sector to get behind and become second. We just don't know what that's like. And I think it's going to be scary when we get there. 5G is a glimpse into what that will be like. So I'm like you, uh, cautiously optimistic that uh, we're now going to see some re-energizing through congressional action of the national innovation system. But that really is the key. Uh, I think there's an increasing recognition of what you're uh, implying, which is that we need a very vibrant uh, technology sector commercially uh, to ensure our national security. And we need that both because the products and solutions are important for the military, but also because there's no better guarantor of national security than having a very strong economy. And technology is going to be key among the industries of leading the way of a very strong economy. You don't have to look any further than the influence of FANG in the uh, stock market uh, to see how important uh, that is going to be for the future. Yeah, I once recently sat next at, at a dinner with, um, uh, I won't say who it was, it was a conference, private conversation, the chief of staff of one of the three major services and um, a general. And I, I said to him, I, this conversation, I said, you know, I think there's a, there's a great uh, line. I think you remember, you're old enough to, when E.F. Hutton talks, people listen. <laughs> and, and essentially it was like, oh, this, oh yeah. yeah, this, you know, this, this, an, yeah, this analyst for, oh, and I feel like when DOD listens, when DOD talks, Congress listens. And so, you know, we've been pushing for a quote, national industrial strategy for a long time and you know, we're making progress, but I feel like when DOD says that it really has a lot of more gravitas, particularly on, on both sides of the aisle. Do you think DOD is sort of being, being a little more comfortable with that? Because when I talked to this general, he said, well, we're not sure that's really our job. That's kind of more the White House's job. And, and I feel like unless DOD is a little more assertive of saying these are our needs and, and we see this need of having a strong commercial technology sector to defend our nation, that would have an important role going forward. Well, I think uh, we're certainly recognizing that at DIU. And I think there's an increasing recognition of that this needs to be really a whole of government approach, because I think, frankly, uh, to revitalize the national innovation system, we really need that to be part of our national agenda. And that's got to be driven from the White House as well. And that also needs to affect, obviously, the budget priorities. I do think, as you alluded to, we are seeing some 
increased interest in Congress. I was very pleased to see, as an example, that the Endless Frontiers Act has, was bicameral and bipartisan. Uh, and I uh, would also point to the Future of Defense Task Force work, uh, if you haven't seen that, by Representatives Seth Moulton and Jim Banks. So another bipartisan effort uh, from the House Armed Services Committee that really highlights uh, many of the same themes that uh, we need to make sure we've got a very vibrant commercial technology sector, and we're drawing upon that. And they put AI at the top of the list. The National Security Council just came out with their critical and emerging technologies list. There's 20-some game-changing technologies there. So I think that we're seeing different efforts uh, underway uh, that would point to an increasing recognition of the importance of this. But I think it will need to be driven by the top and a whole-of-government effort to really make it happen. And I did want to flag ITIF was very supportive of, and we wrote an op-ed about a proposal to give DIU a venture capital arm to invest in startups related to military needs, something I'm sure you support. And why do you think you need that? And what's the status of it legislatively? Well, Jackie, thanks for mentioning that. Yes, we think that's important. In fact, that is what brought me to lead the Defense Innovation Unit, because after doing the work on China... I, and, and seeing that the response was so much defensive activity, what can we do to raise barriers to China? And as we've already talked about, the real answer, yes, you can do some of that activity, but you're never going to win a tech race on defense. The real answer is we need to increase our investment in a lot of areas. And what I observed is that the U.S. venture capital industry, for very good reason, uh, has moved almost exclusively to software. There's very little investment that's being done uh, uh, through venture capital into hardware, and the military needs hardware. <laughs> so uh, how were those kind of startups getting funded? With foreign capital, a lot of it coming from China. That you know frustrates our efforts to have a secure supply chain. So we made a proposal. It's called National Security Innovation Capital that fortunately was adopted in the 2018 NDAA to have a fund that serves as a catalyst. So not a fund that would make these companies government-owned, but could the Defense Department do some market signaling? Could we indicate this is an important technology and a company that's got a promising technology? And if they're successful, we could be a pretty large buyer of what they're doing. So think about this for batteries or quantum sensors for precision navigation and timing without GPS or certain space components, rare earths distillation. These are areas that we know we need in the U.S., uh, but there was very little venture capital going into developing these firms. So the idea is, can we be a catalyst by providing a market signaling and then bring in private money for these type of investments? So legislatively, uh, that has not been appropriated any dollars until the current House Appropriations Bill. So I'm pleased that in the version of the House Appropriations Bill, the Senate will, of course, have to look at that and there'll be a conference committee before we get an actual defense appropriations bill for this year. But in that is the first funding, $15 million for national security innovation capital. We think it could be a vital tool, not the only tool, but a vital tool to help fund some of these promising technology startups in the hardware space, dual use hardware space. I'm also pleased to say that there's been some more aggressive use of the Defense Production Act this year that's gone to uh, quite a few things beyond COVID that help alleviate the uh, supply bottlenecks that, Rob, you mentioned earlier that had come from an earlier report that industrial policy had done, looking at the choke points in the supply chain for the U.S. military. So pleased that the Defense Department is being more aggressive in seeing how it can 
provide the right funding sources for some of the companies that we need to make sure there's there's vibrant sectors or a vibrant sector of some of these uh, supplies that we need. Yeah, and it's certainly not unprecedented. I mean, as you and I both know, the CIA has had InQtel, which is their venture investment arm for, I think, 20, 25 years now, and it's been quite successful. So this is just a, really a, a follow-up and a building off of that in, in a new area that we need uh, from a national security perspective. So I hope it goes through. Thank you. We do, too. We've got big plans for it, if, it, uh, if we're lucky enough to have the appropriation. I guess I wanted to close just by asking you, what else is on your wish list? Do you have a couple top two? If if you were talking to the House committee right now, what would you ask for? Well, I think from the broadest macro perspective, we've already touched on the importance of revitalizing the national innovation system. And a big part there is more federal funding of R&D. That's been on steady decline, as Rob noted in that report, from 2% of GDP in the 1960s to now 07 only half of which is spent on the national security side. The other half goes to health-related spending, which is a great thing. Uh, we need more of that, and the pandemic has highlighted the need for that as well. But in general, we're getting far behind many other countries who are spending a much bigger proportion. That's no way to have, provide the right seed corn that we need for vibrant technology sector for the future, as we talked about before. That's the way you get the big breakthroughs that then benefit the, the whole economy. If, uh, if I'm looking a little bit closer to home at uh, DIU, because that's important for funding the innovation that DIU will draw on for years to come, closer to DIU would be the budget reform that we talked about so that there's more flexibility in spending. We find the biggest obstacle to scaling successful uh, prototypes or successful solutions that we're testing for the military is this ongoing funding source. So in other words, if the DOD partner or customer hasn't planned two years in advance, for a prototype to be successful, they didn't even know they were going to be doing this prototype two years in advance. There's no money there to scale it. So the last thing we want to do is get a commercial vendor to the point of having a successful solution and then say, please wait, we have a budgeting process now that we're going to undergo. So I'd love to see more flexibility for senior leaders to be able to reallocate some dollars. If they see a solution that's faster and cheaper, they should be able to put some dollars towards that. Of course, be transparent to Congress. We can report immediately if we're changing the priorities, but not be holding strictly to uh, whatever the priorities were two years ago when the budget was put together. That will be a huge roadblock that we can remove so that more innovations can scale uh, more productively in the, in the military. And the technologies would probably be cheaper two years Yes, later. that's right. You know, that whole thing, as you describe it, Mike, is so antithetical to innovation. It's like, first of all, in an innovation world, you can't predict what you what, what's going to be available or what's an opportunity in two months, much less two years. So you ought to be able to have the flexibility. And if you're a company, you can't wait two years to do something. I mean, so both on the supply and the demand side, it's just basically saying, let's just keep doing the status quo. Status quo is not going to cut it anymore with the Chinese. I mean, they're not in the status quo. They're in the pedal to the metal at 100 miles an hour. So we got to wake up to that. And I know we are, and that's, it's good. So that's absolutely right. And it comes back to speed. If we have speed as our metric, <laughs> that will help us do the right thing. Well, Mike, thank you so much. Pleasure being with you. Thanks for having me. And that's it for this week. If you liked it, please be sure to rate us and subscribe. Feel free to email show ideas or questions to podcast at itif.org. You can find the show notes and sign up for our weekly email newsletter on our website, which is itif.org. And follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at ITIFDC. And we have more episodes and great guests lined up. 
New episodes will drop every other Monday, so we hope you'll continue to tune in.